thanks for joining us on Back On Air, the podcast for operators who have compliance on their mind and road transport at the heart of their business. This podcast is a recording of our live fortnightly webinar held every other Friday. So if you like what you hear and fancy joining the live event where you can ask questions and vote on our interactive polls, just register through the link in the show notes. The content of this podcast is correct at the time of broadcasting, but it isn't meant to be specific legal advice. If, however, you need advice, we recommend that you take proper legal advice for your individual situation. Finally, please do leave us a review and, of course, details of any areas you would like us to cover in future episodes. We do read them and it helps others find our podcast. Enjoy! Good morning everybody or good afternoon I always kind of get it the wrong way around and happy Friday welcome to our webinar we've got another full packed webinar for you today and you might have guessed there's a bit of a theme to the slides first person to guess um, can win well just praise from us really um, we've got James Backhouse who is our host for today um, so I will pass it over to James and he can get started okay I hope everybody's well Moving through February, the snowy scene um, is not actually present in Clitheroe at the moment, but my brother has the advantage of being uh, somewhere in the middle of Europe in the middle of snow at the moment, so he's lucky, and I'm lucky too, because I'm here presenting to you. So, what have we got today? Uh, a bit of a news item, basically an update on the cartel from James Lomax in a second. Then we're going to look at the different methods by which you may engage your drivers legally and also a discussion about what happens if you get that wrong. Um, I know this is a bit of a perennial topic, but people do still uh, raise a lot of queries in relation to it. It's still very topical with the traffic commissioners and therefore I think it's worth a discussion. By all means, as usual, please do feed your own uh, views through the chat into Chloe who will share them with us and any questions or additional points you want to make. Uh, we're then going to do ESG which is um, going to be covered by uh, Brett and Emily who you'll see in a second um, and then we're going to finally do the five key trigger points that can lead to a public inquiry which is a bit of a Laura special and no doubt I'll be feeding into that. So uh, without further ado let's have a look at um, a little bit of an update on the cartel. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, so yes, the truck cartel is still rumbling on in the uh, in the background. We got the judgment in June last year, which confirmed that the RHA's claim against the European truck manufacturers could continue. Um, it is an opt-in claim. So if you are a truck operator and purchase trucks between 1997 and 2015, then have a look at the Truck Cartel website and look at signing up if you haven't already done so. Um, since the judgment in June, there has been challenge from the truck manufacturers and the other applicant UK trucks claim, truck claims limited um, to the decision of the Competition Appeals Tribunal. Um, that was in court earlier this week. We were in the Court of Appeal just to set down a final hearing and we know that those appeals are going to be determined in early May this year. So hopefully once we have those appeals out of the way, we will be able to continue with the claim and obviously progress to a final hearing. Um, and in that respect, we've had some good news this week. The first uh, English based claim has now gone through the courts and we have judgment. That was the Royal Mail claim against Daft Trucks. 
Um, the Competition Appeals Tribunal did find that there was an overcharge. And uh, so, in effect, that's really good news for those that are part of the RHA claim on the basis that the first decision of the Competition Appeals Tribunal on the issue of any damages and liability has gone in favour of the truck operators. So uh, the judgment's about 300 pages. It was only released on Tuesday this week, so we haven't done a full analysis of that judgment yet, but it is positive news. Uh, we're also due in the Supreme Court next week where DAF have challenged a certain uh, specific element relating to funding. Um, we believe everything is fine with the funding arrangements and that's what the Competition Appeals Tribunal and the Court of Appeal have said. Uh, but DAF have challenged it to the Supreme Court and that is uh, we're, we're in the Supreme Court to make that determination next week. Um, so that's where we are with the cartel um, at the moment. Um, so if you have any questions or anything, give uh, go to the Truck Cartel website, give us a call at the offices here and we'll happily discuss them through if you have any queries. The um, link to the uh, Truck Cartel website will be put on the follow-up email for you all. And, uh, in terms of the, the, the claimants, I think, what, what have we got, about 18,000 or more? Yeah, so it was between 17 and 18,000 at the moment claimants signed up to the claim already, but there are more out there. And um, the, the thing that you have is if you did purchase trucks between that period, which is 1997 and 2015, and you don't opt into the RHA claim and you've not already brought a separate action, then you may potentially not have a claim. So you won't benefit from any claims if you don't look at signing up to, to, to the RHA action because effectively the limitation period has now ended so you can't bring a new claim potentially potentially the only claim the only option you've got is to join the opt-ins um potentially so uh, look at it closely if you're still sitting on the fence so to speak about your position um and you can get advice by contacting the office all right thanks for that james um i think we're going to look at a scenario now now this is the start of the conversation in relation to how you engage with your drive and you can see it on your screen. Yeah, I, can, I don't want to pour salt in anybody's room looking at the screen. But anyway, um, an operator is called to public inquiry for, for maintenance reasons. As part of the documentation, the traffic commissioner notices that whilst there is an authorization for 50 vehicles, the operator only appears to have 10 to 15 employees. Now, this is a common scenario. This is not a rare thing. Um, the traffic commissioners look at the bank statements, which ostensibly you send in for the purpose of proving financial standing, but they actually examine them for a lot of other information as well um, and do a bit of an investigation on those bank statements. Whether that's right or wrong is a, an argument for another day, but they do, and this is a typical one that comes out. The Traffic Commissioner therefore raises the question of how the operator engages the drivers of the remaining fleet, and that's often raised not before the hearing, but actually live in the hearing. Um, and, and, and we're having to engage with it at that point. So go on, Laura, what's your um, take on this initially? I suppose initially the, the first thing to say, is we know we've sort of covered this topic on numerous webinars previously, but the reason we're specifically highlighting it is there is a new angle that the traffic commissioners are coming at um, in relation to this issue recently that we've become aware of, and we'll talk about that more in a moment. But ultimately the question of how you engage your drivers um, isn't new, 
but it's now a feature of virtually every single case that we are dealing with at public inquiry and many more cases that aren't yet at the public inquiry stage. Um, so James has referred here to the fact that the Traffic Commission perhaps has examined the bank statements to look at the yeah. payments in relation to drivers. Um, that might not necessarily be how they've identified this issue, but it's certainly one of the mechanisms that they might use. I've had cases where the Traffic Commission has looked at the audited annual accounts and the auditor's summary has referred specifically to the number of employed uh, staff. And equally, it could be an audit you've had independently of your compliance systems that makes reference to the way in which you engage your drivers. Um, similarly, they might ask you live during the hearing quite openly, how do you engage your drivers? Now, why that's an issue is because back in 2016, HMRC issued guidance that indicated it would only be a very rare that a driver could genuinely be self-employed and therefore the traffic commissioners have adopted that approach so here they're looking for that direct engagement of your drivers uh, through one of the other mechanisms that James Lomax will refer to in a moment um, what the traffic commissioners concern is that if you're using drivers you describe as self-employed that cannot possibly be the legitimate description for that relationship so there's two aspects to that for your operator's license. Firstly, um, it's unfair competition. You're gaining an unfair commercial advantage over your competitors who are appropriately engaging the drivers and making tax, national insurance contributions, paying holiday entitlement, pension contributions and so on, and all the other employment benefits that employee or work status would attract. Secondly, that feeds directly into your good repute as both an operator and or transport manager. And therefore, there's a real risk of action against you individually or the operator's license um, if the traffic commissioner believes you are inappropriately engaging your drivers. Yeah, so, so it, it's, it's a topical issue. It's seen as unfair competition, but also potentially unlawful um, uh, from a um, a tax point of view, tax evasion, and therefore a repute issue from the traffic commissioner perspective. So it's very serious stuff, and it's raised regularly. Um, but just just to set a bit of context, the legislation that deals with how you engage your drivers is covered under both the goods and passenger operators licensing regimes. So for passenger vehicles, the person whose license is being used must be the person for whom the driver works under a contract of employment or some other form of contract personally to perform the work. Okay, which is somewhat vague, but it, might, it would allow, for example, for an agency uh, relationship. And on a goods vehicle license, the person must be the servant or agent of the person whose disc is in the window. There are special provisions if you're driving your own vehicle. I'm not including those here. Um, so you can look at, um, at those two phrases, servant or agent or some other form of contact contract personally to perform the work, depending whether you're goods or passenger, and stew on that for an evening. It'll help you sleep, if nothing else. But the reality is, uh, what does it really mean? Well, James is going to talk to, to you now about how to engage your driver. Yeah, I think dealing with the scenario before we move on to that, the definition that you've just provided from the goods uh, vehicles and passenger vehicles licensing is very similar to the definition of a worker, effectively. Yeah. Um, and that's where it's probably pulled from, which is from the employment rights side. But what we're seeing is where the 
the employment team here and the regulatory team have quite a lot of dialogue at the moment because what the traffic commissioners are doing are they're picking this issue up whether it's from an audit as uh, laura said or whether it's a public inquiry and they're asking for undertakings effectively from operators to change the way in which they engage their drivers so i've got an example here which says so the letter was sent on the 31st of january and then it says by the 1st of april so in effect two months all drivers of authorized vehicles will be employed directly with tax and national insurance deducted at source paid holidays and appropriate pension contributions made the only exception is for temporary agency drivers employed through bona fide employment agencies supplying multiple drivers to multiple operators um, and who also deduct tax and national insurance at source and what that does is it creates quite a burden on you as an operator in my view at that that point because it's saying they must be employed directly that may potentially take worker status out of the equation based on what is said in the specific undertaking but it also looking at the the undertaking itself it says that you will effectively check how your agency Mm. engages with the staff now in this sense it was a multi-license operator so it may be that the different a different undertaking would be required of a smaller operator uh, it may not and so we know all about ir35 we've uh, talked about it it affects medium and large operators but if a smaller operator has this undertaking then they may themselves have to carry out that analysis of how the the agency engages with the uh with with the with the driver itself and one thing that I've seen and spoken about a couple of times in the last month is where there are linked agencies with the company that's that's operating effectively. So there may be common directors, there may be a family connection between the agency and the and the business that's operating drivers engaged through that agency. And I think again here it's the key is supplying multiple drivers to multiple operators. And so there is a potential issue here mm-hmm. in how you get round the the, 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 the undertaking and the, the key question I had was what about what evidence will they require well it just says evidence will be set by a given date and so really you need to show that all you, all you staff are uh, employed at that stage or all your drivers are employed at that stage and that you've made checks <laughs> on the agency and so that is a lot to fit into two, two, two and a bit months effectively um, to comply with the undertaking. And, and if you've provided that undertaking and you don't uh, comply, then I suppose the risk would be that you actually have regulatory action taken against um, the, the, the license. So I think it's quite a good example of, of what the traffic commissioners are doing and my understanding and Laura and James will correct me if I'm wrong, is that actually different uh, traffic areas deal with this in different yeah, ways. Certainly. Some yeah. are more enthusiastic. I think that I think the um, approach taken by the traffic commissioners is somewhat confused because the issue they're trying to address is one thing, and we've, I've spoken about the repute and the unfair competition elements, and that's fair enough. Uh, the employment status point, I think, is where it becomes a little bit muddy because, as James says, that undertaking specifically requires you to directly employ your drivers or use a bona fide as 
agency that supply multiple drivers to multiple operators. That's only two of a number of options. And as James yeah. says, it might eliminate that worker status. So you need to be really careful as an operator if you're being asked to agree to these types of undertaking, that actually the wording of the undertaking mirrors the reality. Because if you do have this hybrid worker category of driver on your books, that is perfectly lawful, but it breaches the undertaking if you've agreed to directly employ them. Um, so I think some there's a bit of a disconnect between the intention and actually the way in which the undertakings are phrased. And that's something that you need to push back on before you agree to those undertakings. And obviously we can help you with that. Which makes a point. Undertakings are something you have to agree to. Uh, now, you might feel that you, 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 it's, a, it's a sort of Damocles decision, but at the end of the day, you do have to agree to it. So um, you are entitled and the traffic commission, to be fair, will listen to representations about the appropriateness they will. of it. They will, and as Jane says, there's a different approach by um, mm. some of the traffic commissioners in terms of where they start with their intervention. So um, one traffic area, I've certainly seen cases where it's come to light that there's a suggestion self-employed drivers are being used or drivers being labelled as self-employed, mm. and the operator, without any other issues in their compliance picture, has been called directly to public inquiry as a result of that single <coughs> issue, the employment status of their drivers. Another traffic area, um, we've seen the letter that James has referred to with the undertaking. Um, and the new element to this that I mentioned at the outset is that that letter, as I understand it, came completely out of the blue. So that operator has had no prior contact with the Traffic Commissioner's Office, DBSA, um, there's no way in which this issue has come to light specifically, yet they've received this letter giving them two months to change the way in which they engage their drivers. Now, a third traffic area, another case I'm dealing with recently, is one where the traffic commissioners identified the issue. They've written out, explained their concern, um, and they've asked the operator to go back to them with their proposals for addressing um, and time frame for addressing the issue. We've done that and the Traffic Commission has written back and embodied that proposal in an undertaking that works for both his purposes and the operator's practical um, achievable goals in terms of addressing this issue. So it's really important that you don't just simply take at face value whatever correspondence you might get um, and agree to it blindly, that you are um, entering into that dialogue and pushing back where you need to because if you can't achieve what the undertaking requires of you you're in breach of an undertaking and that goes directly to that trust relationship with the traffic commissioner you've breached a promise you gave and the chance of action is going to be there you will be going to a hearing as a result of that yeah it's very and if you can't meet an undertaking for for a good reason you have to write at the time hopefully before the undertaking is due to be complied with if it's time specific um, anyway, right. you, you've got a question, I think, arising out of the same uh, scenario. Yeah, just a quick question, if that's all right, James, on the the uh, requirement to obtain evidence that the agency is paying the drive, uh, or sorry, is deducting tax its source. Um, more often than not, you'll have a, a commercial agreement or the agency itself will have a set of terms and conditions that you'll sign up to. I would like to think that they can check that there's an obligation on the agency within that okay. to to, 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 re, to pay the drivers in that way. Um, if you've got those terms or you've got that signed contract that says the agent will 
ensure that drivers are paid, sorry, taxes directly that source by the agency and they will be on the books as employees of the agency. Is that sufficient for the traffic commission, do you think, and maybe to Laura as well? Or do they, with the wording of that undertaking, are they potentially expecting you to go back and request copies of um, payslips and things like that? I don't think, no, I, well, it may be a question for Laura on what the traffic, or, or James on what the traffic commission may require as evidence, but I would think if there was a contractual provision that would allow the contract should be sufficient evidence for the purpose of the undertaking, I don't think the operator would be expected to go to the to the degree of getting payslips at that stage. Um, if anyone's got any experience, I'm happy for you to put that in the chat and we can, we can share that experience with um, the, the the other attendees but yeah from uh, from my perspective I think the contract should be sufficient in that yeah I'd, I'd agree with that I think that at the moment the the evidence would be the contracts of employment or work contracts with your drivers and then any agency they want to see that you've you've got that relationship with a bona fide as agency and to be quite frank, the way in which the agency engages those drivers is another step on the on in the chain, and that is beyond um, what the traffic commission is really interested in in terms of your engagement with your drivers. If you're using an agency with that contractual provision um, in your T's and C's with the agency, if they don't then fulfil that, that's a matter in terms of your contractual relationship. It's not really, in my view, something the traffic commission. Unless they think it's a scam. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I think the other thing is, if you are following the medium and large business, so you have to deal with this for their IR35 purposes, you will be doing your status determination statements anyway. And so you that may be sufficient in, in terms of this requirement to say, well, we've done our status determination statement and sent that to the agency, which effectively says we've assessed this as a, a situation where the drivers aren't genuinely self-employed and you need to amend the way in which you deal with the operator. Certainly think it's arguable. Obviously, the contractual provision is better. Uh, but if you don't have that evidence because it's not in the contract, something like a status determination statement there where you've written to them and said this has to happen uh, may well may well suffice um as evidence to the traffic commi traffic commissioner and i think you know this isn't a new thing it's it's potentially new in terms of the way that traffic commissioners are dealing with it and that's why we've raised it but the issue of status and employment status has been ongoing for a lot of time the statutory guidance given by the traffic commissioner refers to the to the employment test which is ready mixed concrete that was a case determined in 1968 so, you know, from that perspective, it's been going on. Uh, I'm the only one in the room who was actually alive. <laughs> and then only by about a month or two. But remember, in that case, what they're doing is looking at right of control. So from a driver perspective, you're, you've got undertakings on your license absent this type of undertaking that would mean that you would need to exercise the right of control over your drivers. I think we've got to be a bit careful. You shouldn't be required, you shouldn't be required to enter an undertaking that goes beyond the legal requirement to engage a driver uh, in a legitimate way. And, and that's James's starting point, really, which is the, the, the four ways. Um, the last one of the four, via a genuine subcontracting arrangement, that relates to where the driver provides their own vehicle and license. So that's not on your license. If it's on your license, it's the top three of those ways. <laughs> and they are all legitimate and all within the scope 
of servant or agent or um, some other form of contract personally to perform the work. In other words, they're within the legislative provisions. So, um, you know, a conversation needs to be had if you're being asked for something that's very restrictive um, with the traffic commissioner, because as long as you're compliant with the law, they will be happy with it. Um, um, but the, I think probably a more important point is that they're raising this now um, in the way that we've described, although bridge step, step was a revocation case, there was a wider context to that. The reason they're raising this now in this way is because this is, if you like, their stage one of trying to get a cultural shift from self-employed non-taxpayer or non-NI paying drivers being used to drive vehicles on operators license vehicles. That cultural shift, um, um, uh, you know, they'll allow so long yeah. and then you'll get to a point where if it, if it crops up that they don't fit within that, what they regard as a lawful um, arrangement, either because it's beyond the scope of the legislative phrasing or more likely because they consider it unlawful tax evasion, they'll just proceed straight to exercising disciplinary powers under the legislation, which really, you know, is repute, uh, loss of repute, which, as you know, is fundamental. So um, I think the way that the um, certainly one of the traffic commissions phrase it, because we've talked about IR35 on and off over the last however many months and years even. Mm. Um, IR35, I believe, is something of a red herring in this context because many operators that we're dealing with are IR35 exempt because they're not meeting the criteria that would bring them within IR35. And there's a misunderstanding generally that because of that exemption from IR35, this self-employment issue doesn't apply to you. And that's not the case. No. This applies irrespective of IR35. And one of the traffic commissioners in particular, in my view, has absolutely nailed the approach to this by saying it comes down to control. And it's about the control of the drivers. And James has rightly said um, control is a part of all of the undertakings on the operator's license and control is integral to the test for employment status and it's entirely incompatible um, for you to exercise the level of control you're required to under your operator's license for that driver to then be considered self-employed under the employment legislation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and we all know, I speak to many operators about this, we all know it's the drivers that are leading this driver shortage, they have the power but it has to be a cultural shift amongst everyone. And, you know, Joe Bloggs down the road may be operating in a different way, but if you're the one that goes before the traffic commissioner, yeah. you're the one that has to provide the undertaking and the one that may have action taken at a later date. And I think, yes, James is right that these are the statuses okay. that you can apply, but one of the main things is you can have a written agreement in place but if it doesn't operate like that in practice, no matter what you set the status as, it could be determined in another way. And uh, that is the key point. Pick the solution that works best for the situation that, you, that you're in. And I mean, we do a full length two hour training session on this. We're trying to fit it into Right, if we click onto the training slide, James, it, we, we've had, yeah. we're having a lot of questions on this. We'll, we'll have a look at some of them, but in essence, um, really, I understand why it raises a lot of questions because it's about competition and it's about being able to recruit drivers and it's about driver remuneration and it affects both goods and passenger operators uh, um, equally, really. Um, but let's have a look at some of the questions. Fine. Um, could a zero hours contract be suitable for occasional drivers? 
Yes, it can. The issue with zero hours contracts is you can't compel somebody to work for you with a zero hours contract. So it may not fit the situation that you need because you could offer work to somebody and they may not may say, I can't do it. So that's the only problem with it. But it does fit the it, it, it can it can requires more planning you know, yeah yeah you need to you need to be making sure they can work for you long yeah before. and it can only work in the circumstances where it is genuinely zero hours if they're working five days a week for you and have a few weeks off and maybe a month off here and there it's generally not a zero hours contract got quite a lot of questions about limited company drivers so i'll try and group them and um, so when you talk about self-employed drivers do you mean limited company drivers yeah. Yeah. and are limited company drivers legal is it illegal to employ them there's two limbs to that really yeah. your self-employed drivers either are the individual drivers so me tipping up as laura had to drive and you pay me off invoice or i've incorporated a limited company that i'm literally the sole person involved with and i present myself to provide driving services to you and charge you through my limited company both of those are what the traffic commissioners would class as this self-employed driver issue so neither is acceptable and the traffic commissioners will look, for example, in bank statements at transactions to Laura Hadzik Limited for what looks like driver payments each week and ask the question, why are you making payments of this amount to this limited company? Because that limited company doesn't have an operator's license. Yeah, and I think it's you've got HMRC issue if it's a sole trader. There probably is no issue in that scenario if they're driving because they are being paid and should be paying tax in the appropriate sense, there may be an issue with the employer's contributions, um, which which may flag an, flag an issue, but the individual contributions will be fine, but that doesn't change the position for the traffic commissioner because of the holiday pay situation and all the other elements that I think Laura mentioned um, early, earlier on, but you are really looking at, the, the most common scenario is drivers are becoming limited and they're becoming limited and utilizing a company's O license and vehicles because they pay less tax and that's the real crux of this situation it's within it's this industry. And actually the other more serious element to that limited company driver issue is some of the traffic commissioners have certainly at least two cases I can think of suggested that because you're presenting yourself with your with someone else's vehicle but you're a limited company yourself you're borrowing a disc from them, so it's yeah. disc lending. It, it's it's it massively illegal. Which 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 leaves you subject to having the vehicle impounded. Yeah. So uh, which you don't get back. So it is serious stuff if if, if they're ready to play hardball yeah. with it. Okay, we need extra drivers during some peak periods. What's the best way to handle this? You you can do it. That could be a situation where zero hour contracts work, dependent on how long the period is. Another way of doing it is annualized hours contracts effectively. So if you know for a proportion of the year that you are going to need drivers between September and October, whatever the period may be, and you know that generally they work a set number of hours in that period, you could you can do that. Um, the complication with the annualized hours is that there's been recent case law that means that if there's an overarching contract you may have to pay them a full full set of holiday entitlement so it may not be as attractive as it once was was with annualized hours contracts but they're probably the two options two best options in that in that scenario or your part-time worker as a, as a as a third if also 
Contractors operate under their own operator's licence but sometimes work full-time for the company during our busy season and not at all at other times of the year. Is this okay? So subcontractors operate under their own operators. Yeah, license. you mean they work full time for the company, but using their own operators. But not all the time, just in the busy periods. Yeah, but yeah, okay. If they're independent, they have their own vehicle, their own license. However much or little work they do for you, they are legitimately self-employed. They're running their own business. If if you're meaning that sometimes of the year they're driving vehicles on your license, but at other times of the year they're driving their own vehicles, then they have a split um, function. I'm right in saying answer. Yeah. So that when they have their own vehicle, that's genuinely self-employed. <laughs> when they're jumping behind the wheel of your vehicle, they're either a worker, zero hours contract, or a, a general employee. Here. Um, either way, those categories, that, that second category, you should be doing tax and NI. Yeah, couldn't have answered it better myself. Thanks, <laughs> 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 John Christum. Go on. Um, I'll listen about regular listeners, so I'll jump to this one. We have some zero hours contract drivers. They are generally retired drivers who want to do a little now and again. They usually only work if, ab if available when we are short due to sickness or holidays. How is this wrong? That isn't wrong, provided they're not operating through their own limited company. So if they are on the books and you pay tax and national insurance for the periods that they work for you, then there's nothing wrong with that. OK. Oh, what can be said about a solicitor having advised that it is appropriate to have subcontracting arrangements for drivers engaged by EU parent companies operators? Not all of those have a right to work in the UK. Mm, sounds like a complicated yeah. uh, set of scenario yeah. to me. That may, that may be one way you, you give us a call after, yeah. uh, <laughs> in this, just because it could take a while to answer the, answer the question. Laura, you said that some areas, um, some regions are more on it. Um, which ones are? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I told you I have to kill <laughs> Sorry, no, maybe after. <laughs> Can a driver work at zero hours contracts for more than one company? Yes. Yeah. If a driver is self-employed driver and he drives for yourself, and two other hauliers, this is acceptable. Yeah. <laughs> no. 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 So it's the self-employed that is the issue, not and what you do with that. So those in that individual can work for multiple people as a zero hours worker, a worker. It can be an employee for three different companies, uh, provided he's not breaching his employment contract by doing that. But as soon as he goes into the self-employed status, you run the risk of the issues with the traffic commissioner, the tax and potential employment issues. Yeah, and I think that's the issue, isn't it? The issue is that because uh, drivers want to be self-employed. They argue that they're providing their services to a number of different um, um, operators, and as such, they're running their own little driving business. But in reality, there are plenty of people who have more than one employment, mm -hmm. um, and there are plenty of people who do that on a flexible basis. They're still engaged um, as either a worker or an employee, and in those contexts, they're still having to pay full tax, and that's the heart of the underlying issue. Uh, about unfair competition you can't avoid it by by setting up a, a limited company if it's unlawful it's unlawful and um, I suppose what's happening here is the inland revenue is are saying look it's a big task for us to take all these businesses to court for undue, overdue tax for the last six years or prosecute them or whatever it's much easier for us 
to get the regulator to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And the regulators are saying, well, it's unfair competition on those operators that don't operate that way. So we're happy to deal with it. It's within our jurisdiction. That's really where you're at. Okay, we best move. I'll save these questions uh, if we have time at the end. Yeah, fine. Um, we best move on because uh, we've got uh, Brett and Emily waiting patiently here. Um, but I think, for, um, oh, first okay. of all, you're getting a little bit of Laura, a little bit of me, and then we've got Brett and Emily. So let's have a look at okay. this. What can you do to influence the outcome at PR? Well, I thought it would be useful to talk about the different trigger points for you sort of springing into action when you become aware of an issue, because we very often talk about what might happen at public inquiry, the action the traffic commissioner might take, or the risk of you even getting to public inquiry in the first place. Um, I think what's often overlooked is actually how important it is at what stage you first realise there's a problem and take action to solve that problem. So on the screen, you can see we've got five trigger points. Now, normally, any DVSA involvement or interest in you as an operator arises because of trigger one. And trigger one is normally, or most typically, some form of roadside encounter with one of your drivers, um, an SMART prohibitions issue for a tyre defect, for example, or your driver's issued with a fixed penalty notice and prohibition because um, they've been driving without their card or there's some tachograph issue. Um, that is your earliest possible opportunity to take steps to address the problem. And you should be using that opportunity to put you in the strongest possible position when you get to public inquiry. Now, unfortunately, many operators don't use that trigger one event in the most effective way. Um, that trigger one event will inevitably always lead to further interest from DBSA. And typically this will be very shortly thereafter. And this is your trigger two event. This is either a maintenance investigation by way of follow up to a roadworthiness prohibition or an MOT fail. It's your traffic examiner visit and investigation, or it could be the desk based assessment remote enforcement process that follows um, either of those maintenance or traffic issues at the roadside. Um, but that trigger two event is a warts and all review of your compliance systems. and It tells you what, if any, shortcomings DBSA have found. You need to use that to address and solve any problems that they have identified, because inevitably that report is not the end of the story. That report will go somewhere and most typically it will find its way to the traffic commissioner for consideration of public inquiry or preliminary hearing action and intervention. Now, operators that use that trigger one or trigger two event well and effectively do have a good chance of avoiding public inquiry. But even if they're not successful in doing that and they still find themselves called to public inquiry, you are going to be avoiding a more serious end of the scale in terms of traffic commissioner action and potentially find yourself in a scenario where there's no action at all taken against the transport managers or the operator's license at the public inquiry. Now, the important thing with that trigger to event, the full investigation, is in the majority of cases, and I would say pretty much 99.9% .9 of cases, that's not the first part of the story. There's been that trigger one event previously. So if you as a transport manager are subject to a DVSA investigation, and you don't know about the trigger one event that triggered that investigation, you need to investigate and find out why you've not been told about it and why you don't know and haven't been able to use that opportunity. Now, some operators still don't use those trigger one or trigger two events 
uh, most effectively. And that's operators that then fall into this trigger three bracket. And trigger three is your call up letter to public inquiry tells you you're going to a hearing and spells out clearly the risk of regulatory action against your license and the individuals involved. Um, and that, again, is a point at which you should be taking the opportunity to address any issues that you haven't yet uh, taken steps to deal with. Those three, in my view, are really your sort of main areas that you need to be concentrating on. Ideally, trigger one and after that, trigger two. Uh, trigger, yeah, trigger three, three is desperate. Really. Trigger three, you've only got three, four weeks before you get to the hearing. So you're not going to be in a position to produce comprehensive evidence of compliance and solving the problems. Worse still is operators that wait until trigger four or even trigger five. And you really don't want to be in either of these categories. If you're a trigger four operator, you're the operator that turns up to public inquiry with a little bit of a plan about what you might do in the future. And you're promising the traffic commissioner about steps you're going to take in the days and weeks that follow the public inquiry. Now, how likely is it that the traffic commissioner is going to sit there believing they can trust you to get it right in the future and therefore not take action against your license if you've not used those trigger one, two and three opportunities to grasp the nettle and solve the problems that you are on notice about? It becomes even bleaker if you're a trigger five operator who turns up to the public inquiry without even having a plan. You've not even thought about what promises you might give. And you're actually waiting for the traffic commissioner to tell you what they want you to do to solve the problems. Trigger four and trigger five, you are going to be facing action and action at the more serious end of the scale. Um, now, I've not made these up. I would like to take the credit for the triggers one to five, but I haven't made these up. These come from upper tribunal case law, and these are very much the way in which traffic commissioners are now increasingly looking at cases when they get to public inquiry. They're asking what triggers were there in the process leading to the day of the hearing, and at what stage in that trigger line did the operator start to sort of smell, smell the coffee? Now, quite exceptionally, I've had a case recently where an operator um, actually identified the problems themselves before we even got to trigger one. Um, they realised compliance had slipped as a result of a combination of factors, but primarily the impact of COVID on the business, the personnel and the spreading of roles to keep the business afloat, essentially. Um, they started to put an action plan into place and coincidentally, a few months later, DVSA turned up entirely unannounced to conduct an investigation, which I've referred to as trigger two. In this case, it was trigger one because there was nothing prior, quite unusually. Now, that investigation did accelerate the process of dealing with the shortcomings, but the operator was already well on that journey by the time DBSA turned up. That didn't enable them to avoid public inquiry, but by the time we got to public inquiry, they were able to demonstrate they were entirely compliant. They'd got a body of documentation that spanned a number of months showing compliance. All of the issues have been embraced and addressed and dealt with and solved. And the traffic commissioner was actually incredibly complimentary of the operator, the transport managers, the efforts they had gone to to solve the problem initially off their own back, but then more focused post DVSA investigation. And that operator and all of its transport managers avoided any form of action being taken against the license or them personally. 
Um, now, I said at the start of talking about that case, that was quite exceptional. And sadly, that is exceptional. Um, unfortunately, James will agree, we see all too many cases where we're contacted either at the trigger three stage where the call-up letter has been received, or possibly the trigger two stage where DBSA have been in and conducted an investigation. And the overwhelming um, common feature is that operators unfortunately are far too slow yeah. in realising the issue and tackling that issue to solve the problems. Um, you really do need to use every opportunity that's putting you on notice of a problem um, to try and solve that problem. Because if you're an operator sat before a traffic commissioner having had an issue, if you're able to uh, show that you've solved that as soon as you became aware of it, and not only that, you've looked at your wider compliance to ensure you've not got weaknesses in any other areas. Um, you are going to be the operator that comes out of that public inquiry entirely unscathed. Um, so I thought it might just be useful to um, illustrate that five trigger process, but also quite refreshingly tell you about the case that I've dealt with recently where that trigger process really did bear fruit for this particular operator. Okay, um, let's um, let's move on to deal with the next topic. Um, I think I think that topic is a, a really important um, topic for operators, and probably does reinforce the need to get audits as well uh, from time to time, just to make sure that you know where you're at. But let's move on to the next topic, and let's fastest fingers first. We're into our alliteration here today. What does ESG stand for? So what are the options, James? Well, I think they can read them, but select one of the following. Economic social growth, economic social governments, e environmental social growth. <laughs> or none of the above. Or, or none, none of, of the, the above. above. <laughs> <laughs> it's supposed to say none of the above, isn't it? Um, uh, I think we'll find it is none of the above. Um, and neither is it a starchy substance that they use to pack out Chinese food, which is MSG. So... <laughs> Monosodium glutamate. Uh, apologies for that. So the quiz was a little bit pointless there. Um, it is, in fact, environmental social governance. Now, uh, we called it something else, C something. Anyway, there was a previous acronym for this, Corporate yes, Social uh, Responsibility. There you go. Um, prior to this. So it's essentially the same thing, but it's more specifically including environmental. So come on then, Emily. Tell us what ESG actually means in practice for businesses. I mean, I'm not sure I can follow from that. So environmental, social and governance is basically set to be the next big thing, we think, in the business world. So I'm just going to be very brief, quick, quick overview and break it down into the three parts. Um, environmental, so basically a measure of the company's impact on the environment and takes into account factors like um, your carbon footprint and any production of waste and pollution. And companies are expected to assess their impact on the environment and um, take steps to reduce this where possible. Um, and then the next part, social, which is basically um, how your company treats people, so from your employees, your customers, and um, even to the extent of the local community in the area that you operate and how you're interacting with that local community as well. Um, and then the third and final part of it is governance, 
which is a measure of how your company operates in terms of are you getting audits done regularly, um, board diversity, um, internal controls and your shareholders' rights. So you're probably thinking now, how, how does that apply to me? Why would I care? Um, but a lot of customers and consumers and big corporations um, are, are really focusing now on responsible business practices. And we're seeing quite often, actually, that when it comes to tendering for work, um, a lot of the biz bigger companies are requiring operators and their other suppliers to have um, specific ESG policies and procedures in place. And, and so if you don't have these procedures in place, you're potentially missing out on that work. Um, not only are the um, not only is it missing out on work potentially as well, but there's other ways that it could it could potentially save money in other ways, having these sorts of policies and procedures in place. So, um, for example, if we move on to the next slide, please, Chloe. We have come up with 14 potential ESG related policies, um, which we think could be helpful to businesses. Um, I'm not going to go through them all in detail because I think they're probably fairly self-explanatory in the most part. Um, so like human trafficking policy um, and that cover things from like clandestine entrance, um, which is also quite topical at the moment. I know we've got an article on our website, uh, I think in the last week or so, um, with fines increasing for operators being caught with any clandestine entrance as well. So that's quite a topical one. Um, and then you've got your stress and mental health at work policy. Um, and I think I understand traffic commissioners are also starting to look at, at this as well. I think, Laura, have you had a hearing recently where traffic commissioners raised something along those lines? Yeah, one of the traffic commissioners in particular was impressed with an operator who's training toolbox talks and other driver material um, related specifically to driver health and well-being, both physical and mental. So that was um, a particular area of focus that they commented on. So it's certainly something the traffic commissioners are becoming increasingly alive to. I mean, it reduces the risk of accidents through distraction. So there is a there is a direct road safety implication. Um, and then things like your environmental policy as well, which obviously, um, you know, for example, if you were to have any environmental issues and, and say the environment agency come in, if you've got a policy in place covering that, that's that potentially could help if you were looking at any fines or something, if you can show that you are you have thought about it previously. Um, so what I'm going to ask you to do, if you could have a quick look through those 14 policies we've got listed there. Are there any of those policies that you think might be particularly helpful to your business? If you just in the chat box, just drop the number in there of any of the policies which you think uh, might be helpful. Just for an idea for us, really, um, for what we think, you know, if we can direct towards you, we are thinking of putting together, together a package um, with some policies. So if you give us an idea of what you think would be most helpful for you. We can look to cover those. Got a bit of an interesting question. Oh. <laughs> um, number 11, the menopause policy. If you're, um, I don't, I'll reword this. If your company is predominantly of one certain gender, would you still recommend having one of these? I mean, it, it might even be that it's more relevant if, for example, it is a male dominated workforce and you've got 
one or two females, then it, it's may it may be even more important for you to have a menopause policy in place so that the rest of that male uh, workforce can understand um, for for the females in in your workforce really. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It stops um, obviously discrimination and other elements coming into effect, and so as equal opportunities employers as everyone who is listening will be you should make sure that your policies and procedures cover off all eventualities so that I suppose you have protections if a discrimination type claim is brought against you as a as an employer I mean I'm just on the point it's not just a question of training is it sorry it's not just a question of having the policies no I think you've got to recognize that having the policy and not training is kind of worse Uh, you you have to combine the policy with awareness training internally which might involve some external awareness training on some of these areas I mean you you look at number one anti-slavery and human trafficking policy and think well really you know there's going to be very few businesses that get into trouble for that well you'd be very surprised the legislation dealing with anti-slavery and human trafficking is in fact catching people who use workers who have not complied with the immigration process correctly so you might think well that's a technical immigration failure yeah it might be but it can commit an anti-slavery and human trafficking offense which are super serious so um, this happens quite a lot these days in legislation relatively minor breaches get a very heavy title um, and of course have huge reputational impact if not personal impact if you end up going to prison yeah absolutely and you've got to do right to work checks at the start of employment anyway which would fall into that policy even if it is a, a, a a reduced policy we're not saying you have to have the most sophisticated one in that sense depending on the nature of your business but you still need to have those checks in place and make sure you cover off all these issues particularly if you're anticipating working for large um large companies i suppose okay. as well specifically emily's spoken about the tendering process but from an employment and employee recruitment angle if you're an operator that has got things like a menopause policy in place, you're potentially going to be attracting a more diverse workforce and opening your doors to a wider pool from which you can draw your drivers and other members of staff. Mm-hmm. Um, we, be- we better move on because we've got a lot of questions, have we? Do we not have the answers? Oh, the answers. <laughs> <laughs> so um, a lot of people are saying all of them are relevant, but... It's always good to update them. A lot of people saying reviews. The most popular numbers we've had are number five, which is the stress mental well-being at work policy. Um, and someone said, what about male mental health? This will fall under that, I'm sure. Will it? Yeah. yeah. Um, number 12 has also been very popular, domestic abuse policy. And But someone has actually said, why would a company have a domestic abuse policy? Um, so, for example, if Brett, <laughs> what? I think, it, I think it's a, I think it's a, a, a thing in terms of your employees. It's knowing your employees, it's looking linked. after your employees. It's linked. Obviously, there may be situations within an, a, a family-orientated business as well, which may result in domestic abuse type situations and so it's just having that governance in place to alert and give your employees an indication of what they can do in situations where they are suffering with those you know for example if you have somebody who is suffering domestic abuse that is a driver you know they're having that at home they're coming to work and driving 
a weapon effectively you know and the last thing you want to do is them not to have an outlet and that's why you have these types of policies and procedures in in place it's kind um, of linked with yeah. five isn't it yeah, yeah. the stress and yeah. well-being i think that's what i was going to say is it, it kind of forms it, they're all important as 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 the uh, listeners have rightly outlined and and it's not necessarily one policy is is right and and and, and another isn't that you should consider all of them and and yeah they do intrinsically link with each other and you're right my, my comment on the domestic abuse policy is yeah you know you need to be making um, provision to, to to enable employees to raise these issues if they are having them doesn't we're not saying which side of the coin they might be on but just having the ability to talk about raise those issues and and make your employer aware so that the employer can make reasonable measures or take reasonable measures to accommodate them if, if they feel it appropriate to you. And, and not everybody wants everything in full no. glory, do they? Right, okay. It's fine. Uh, a lot of people are saying that this is just an few interesting points that some of the policies they wouldn't have even thought about a few years ago and a lot of them for instance she said seven is just obviously something that has come to the forefront yeah, they're true. also um a lot of people are saying uh, drugs and alcohol policies would be good and someone has said um policies to raise awareness of certain um like autistic adhd asperger's mm. um, and i thought that was really interesting yeah, yeah. um I'll I'll, hand start, I'll start with the questions. There's been some really interesting points on that, though, so thank you, everyone. Um, questions. <laughs> um, what if an agency driver you are using is a self-employed driver? So again, it comes down to so, so it comes down to the situation if they're a bona fide agency who pro provide multiple drivers to multiple um operators then on the face of it you as an operator are um compliant in terms of from the traffic commissioner's perspective because you're engaging drivers through a bona fide agency the problem comes if there's a link between the agencies and the and the operator they're only supplying one operator or you have this type of undertaking that i read out earlier which which effectively puts an obligation on you to check how the agency is engaging with the driver or if you're a medium and large operator who has to comply with IR35 then again in that scenario you do your status determination statement so on the face of it there isn't an issue and if it was flagged to the traffic commissioner that you engaged drivers through a bona fide agency I don't think they would delve into it in a bit more detail but there are still issues and, and potential concerns that you should have as an operator in that scenario because it still may have an impact on you later down the line. Yeah, that's the real risk. <laughs> From a commercial perspective, with my commercial hat on and Emily as well, if you've got that terms with your agency and you've got a specific provision in your contract that says um, you are, you know, you are to ensure that the agency drivers are paid uh, net of tax and national insurance. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you have an indemnity in that contract as well. If you do face enforcement yeah. action from the traffic commissioner and suffer a loss, you can pursue the agency for all of those losses. And so that's something that Emily will certainly make sure is in there. Yeah, I can't, send them across to. I can't recommend enough that you get agency contracts checked because they will be drafted by the agency and they will be completely in the agency's favour. And it and is can always expose, yeah, yeah, and can expose you, particularly with if you end up taking the driver on, there can be huge penalties in terms of that. So 
these I can't recommend highly enough that you get agency. All right, two more questions. Two more times. So Laura, do you need to write to the TC we MOT fails as you do with prohibitions or just keep your own record? That you're not required to specifically. Um, you should investigate it fully, do your root cause analysis, document the whole process. You might voluntarily decide to write to the Traffic Commissioner, but it's more important you've done that process internally and have it on file. Yeah, you'd normally only write where there was a significant issue, yeah, like there's a, a brakes failure, an S marks yeah. or something, yeah, and not normally otherwise. And we have had a lot of questions, so if we haven't covered your question and you do want to ask it, please just email me and I will get one of the team here to, to get back to you. But finally, Emily. Uh, some of the policies we don't have, is that something that you could provide for us? It definitely <laughs> is. <laughs> you want to give me a call or drop me an email, we can definitely help out there. Yeah. I think Emily might be very busy in the coming <laughs> week. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we're absolutely on the nail of one o'clock, um, even though I'm not the boss here, because it clearly is a few um, we actually haven't landed it perfectly on time. Um, I hope you've enjoyed today's session. Um, we obviously have another one in two weeks' time. Uh, any topics you want us to cover, do let us know. Any format changes you think we could uh, embrace, we'll certainly look at them. Um, but in the meantime, have a wonderful weekend. Thank you very Thank much, you. everyone. Thank you.